It was the summer after my senior year in high school, and I was about a month away from leaving home for college for the first time. And I was driving to work on an old country road, and I was in my old beat-up car. I had my old stereo that I had jury-rigged underneath the dash of the car. But lately, my stereo had been acting up Every time I'd go over a bump, it would cut out, and it was bothering me. And so as I'm driving down early in the morning down this road, I start to lean underneath the dash, reaching under the dash, trying to reach the wires in the back of the stereo, hoping I can reconnect whatever's disconnecting when I would hit the bumps. Of course, like most teenage boys, I thought I was invincible behind the wheel at that point in my life. And so as I'm doing this, about the second or third time that I looked up from underneath the dash at the road in front of me as I'm driving down the road, all of a sudden all I could see was the color red. And that's because I was about to hit head-on a semi-truck, a tractor-trailer truck that was only several yards in front of me. In that moment, I didn't have time to hit the brakes. I remember flipping the steering wheel to the right as hard and as fast as I could, and I braced myself for the impact. And an impact came. I certainly hit the truck, but it didn't hit it like I expected to. And in kind of a surreal way, I found myself just a moment later back on my side of the road, driving down the road as though nothing had happened. And I was certainly puzzled in the moment, but I pulled the car over, realized I couldn't open the door of my car. I had to, with both feet, kick it open. After I got out of the car, I looked back at the driver's side of the car, and it was all crumpled all the way from the front to the back, and it was a strange black color. And I turned around to see what had happened to the truck, and it had run into the bank and was stopped there along the side of the road, face into the bank. And as I'm running back to find out what had happened to the driver, I began to realize what must have happened is that as our vehicles were coming towards one another and about to hit each other head on, I suddenly swerved to my right, and as he tried to swerve to his right, the the truck actually jackknifed, and so it, at a 90-degree angle, went directly into the bank at the side of the road, which meant that when my car actually impacted his truck, the cab of his truck, I actually hit his tires. And having hit the tires on the side of his truck cab, I actually bounced to the other side of the road, and that's why I was able to keep going, and that the impact was not nearly as destructive as I expected it to be. In the Lord's providence, neither I nor the truck driver had any serious injury, nothing more than bruises. But from that moment on, I've often thought of that event and thought how I came this close to dying. If I had looked up a split second later, I wouldn't have been able to avoid hitting him head on, and I would have died right there in the spot. The cops came, my father eventually came, and then he took me home. And I remember just an hour or two later laying there on my bed in my bedroom, staring at the ceiling, just shuddering, thinking about what had almost happened. And as I tried to process it, I laid there thinking, I looked over to the bedside table, and there was my Bible. 
I was a brand new Christian. I'd only been a Christian for a few months. Didn't know anything about the Bible. Didn't know how to read it. But I knew the answer must be in there somewhere. So I picked up the Bible and of course not knowing how to read the Bible, I did what most people do. I just let it fall open and started reading. And literally, these are the first words that I read that day as I lay there in my bed after that accident. Here's what the Word of God said to me, and I did feel it was speaking directly and uniquely to me in that moment. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. This is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Having read those words from the Lord, I prayed. I got up off my bed, went back, got into our other car, and drove to work and worked the rest of that day. All because the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, spoke to me through his word. And his word restored me, healed me, taught me a strong lesson about what it means to live every moment, realizing that I'm dependent upon the Lord for his grace and that he is the one who watches over me. Today on Easter Sunday, we celebrate a, another far greater deliverance from death, the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just from death, but from the grave itself, as he went through death on our behalf. How he was raised from the dead, and in his resurrection, we have hope for this life and for eternal life. We celebrate today that death could not hold Jesus Christ, and because it could not hold him, it cannot hold us. As Romans chapter 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As I was preparing this message, I thought about the fact that there's a very good chance that our Lord Jesus Christ sang this psalm just hours before he went to the cross to die for our sins. This psalm is in a section of the Psalter from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which is called the Great Hallel. And it's a section of the Old Testament Psalter that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, sang every year as part of the Passover. And that's what was being celebrated in Jerusalem when Jesus was put upon the cross. Jesus and his disciples 
it's highly likely that Jesus and his disciples had sung Psalm 116, which I just read, on the evening of the Last Supper, when he met with his disciples to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. And this psalm would have expressed the faith and the trust of Jesus as he hung on the cross. When it says, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, then I called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus was faithful even as he bore the wrath of God for our sins. And he trusted in God. Into his hands, he committed his spirit. I can't help but think that maybe even the words of this psalm were on the mind of Christ as he stepped out of that tomb on the third day. When it says, you have delivered my soul from death, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now granted, this psalm was not written directly about the resurrection of Christ. It was written about an event in the life of the psalmist, and we don't know who the psalmist was, but it was written about some event in his life which was very similar to the event that happened in my life when I was 18 years old. But all of scripture points to Christ. All the psalms point to Christ. And as this psalm points to that historical deliverance from death in the life of the psalmist, ultimately it points to the deliverance from death that was given to Christ as Christ went through death and was raised from the death victorious. And in his victory, we find our hope. And so this is a psalm about celebrating our deliverance from death. All we know about the writer is that he had just experienced some kind of a near-death experience. Maybe it was a deadly illness, and there are some aspects of the psalm that might indicate that it was a, 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 an illness that should have led to his death that he was delivered from. Or maybe it was a seemingly mortal battle wound that he had suffered. Or maybe it was a narrow escape from a tragic accident like I experienced. I love that about the psalms. The psalms are written in such a way that they don't speak to the specifics of what the psalm writer is talking about, but it speaks in broad terms so that we can easily apply these psalms to our own lives. And that's certainly the case here as well. In verse 3, he says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Notice the aggressive, vicious language that's used, the way that death went after him. It laid hold on him. It encompassed him. Scripture often presents death as our enemy. Death is in alliance with the evil one. Death is certainly under the control of our God, but death is our final enemy. The greatest weapon that the evil one has to threaten us with, to use against us. And so the psalmist, not just here, but in many places, talks about death 
as it, like a hunter, as it attempts to ensnare us, to trap us. And in light of it, we are helpless. And so before we get to the ultimate deliverance from death that this psalm points us to, let's just look at it for what it is. It's just an expression of praise and thanksgiving to God for deliverance from physical death. The daily rescue from death that we all experience, even though most of the time we don't even think about it. The Word of God continually emphasizes how fragile our life in this world really is. For example, in Isaiah 40, a very familiar passage, talks about our lives in this fallen world, our physical lives, as being, we're like the grass of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. That is a consistent message of Scripture. We don't think that way, especially in the 21st century, with our medical technology, with the science, with all of the protections and insulations we have from death. But we need to be reminded that our, death, our, our life can be taken from us in just a moment. When we talk about a near-death experience, that's only meaningful from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, we're all near death every moment of every day. And it's foolish to think that death is something that we can just put off in the distance and not deal with until sometime later. I sometimes think about that as I'm driving down the highway, especially if I'm on the interstate and cars are going past me at 70 miles an hour. And I'll sometimes think I'll be reminded of that accident when I was 18 and how in just a moment a car could swerve into my lane, totally out of my control, and my life could be over in an instant. And yet every day is like that. Every day is a gift from the Lord. Our life is fragile, but it's protected in his powerful hands. He's the one who controls the tornado. He's the one who controls the earthquake. He's the one who controls the stroke or the cancer or the heart attack. We're dependent upon him for every breath of life. And in that awareness, we begin to be thankful and to worship. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. Do you notice the language there? God is gracious in preserving simple people like us. God is merciful. He recognizes that we don't have a right to life in that sense before God. We haven't earned the reward of life. We are sinners who deserve God's anger and God's condemnation. And we deserve death. Death right now because of our sin. And it's only God's grace that delays death that preserves us from death, that gives us another breath, that gives us another hour, that gives us another day, that gives us another month or another year to live. It's all by God's grace. Because he is gracious. He is merciful. Death as this aggressive enemy out to entrap us, to destroy us, has every right to lay claim to us because of our sin. 
The wages of sin is death, as Paul says. But that's why our greatest comfort is not in the daily deliverance from death that this psalm points us to, but it's in the permanent deliverance from death that we have because of the Messiah. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus, and he rescued Lazarus from physical death. Lazarus had been dead for days when the Lord spoke to him and called him back to life, and he walked out of the tomb. But Lazarus would die again one day. That was only a temporary reprieve from physical death. But in that event, Jesus made sure that Lazarus and his sisters understood that this was a sign of a far greater victory over death to come. As he said to Lazarus' sister in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Obviously, he's not referring to physical life there because Lazarus would die. Mary would die. Martha would die. You and I will die physically because of the curse on this fallen creation. But we will not die ultimately. Our bodies will be raised again in the great resurrection, as Jesus said on that occasion. But we will body and soul be raised to live with Christ forever when he returns. And when we die physically, our soul goes immediately into the very presence of our Lord. And our existence with him for eternity begins in that moment. Right before he died on the cross, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verse 19, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you also will live. That is our hope on Easter. That because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we too will live in him, with him, forever. Well, the rest of the psalm, and I only read the first half of the psalm, the rest of the psalm deals with what are the implications of this. As Francis Schaeffer would have said, how then shall we live in this world until that day that we die in the flesh and go with the Spirit to be with the Lord forever? How do we live in response to this Lord who daily rescues us from physical death and ultimately will rescue us from both physical and spiritual death for eternity? Well, let's read how the psalmist exhorts us to live in light of this deliverance, beginning in verse 10 of Psalm 116. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. 
I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Why did God hear this psalmist cry for help, the cry for deliverance? Why did God hear him and respond in grace to save him? Well, it's because of his faith. You can see that in verse 10. He starts this section of the psalm by saying, I believed. When did he believe? He believed, he says, even when he was saying, I am greatly afflicted. In the midst of whatever trial he was in, in the midst of the danger, in the midst of the near-death experience that he was enduring, he said, I believe. It's a statement of faith in the goodness of the Lord, the covenant promises of God to be with his people and to care for his people, to deliver his people. He believed. Even when he looked at everyone around him, and he says here, he quotes himself saying, all mankind are liars. He realized he could not trust in the people around him, ultimately. Even in that moment when he felt let down, betrayed, abandoned by the people around him, in that moment he says, I believe. I have faith in your promises, O God. And so his whole life, after his deliverance then, becomes a response to God's grace. He was delivered because of faith, not because of works. He was delivered because he trusted in God's promise, not because he had done anything deserving of that deliverance. This section of the psalm is not talking about what we do in order to be delivered by the Lord or what we do in order to be saved. It's about what we do because we've been saved. It's how we live because the Lord has delivered us from death. Well, what do we do? First of all, because Jesus is risen. This is our New Testament, New Covenant perspective, looking back on this psalm, celebrating our deliverance. We say, because Jesus is risen, we live to worship. Our life is about worship. Not just what we do for an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half, one day a week, but our life becomes an act of worship to the God who delivered us. Verse 2, at the beginning of the psalm, which we read a little while ago, it says, because he, is, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. To call upon the Lord is an Old Testament way of speaking about worship. Sometimes it uses that phrase, as it did early in the psalm, to talk about a, a cry out, a plea, a cry for help. But most of the time when it uses that phrase, and in this context, when it uses that phrase of calling upon the Lord, it's another way of saying, I will commit myself to live to worship the Lord. In Genesis chapter 4, it talks about the time early in mankind's history where God was gracious to Adam and Eve, and he formed a covenant with Adam and Eve of grace. And then he gave them another son, a son named Seth. And it says in Genesis 4, 26, to Seth also was born a son. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is who he's revealed himself to be in his nature and in his works. To call upon the name of the Lord is to worship him and to serve him, to 
bow before him. In Genesis 12, verse 8, it talks about Abram when he came into the promised land. And it says, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And so that's what the psalmist is saying. Because he has delivered me, I will live a life of worship to him. In verse 12, it says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And that's such a natural reaction to realize when you think about all that God has done for you by his grace and by his grace alone, you didn't deserve any of it. All that he has given to you, all the grace that he has shown you, how can you pay him back? But he makes it clear here that our worship is not paying God back. We cannot pay back for all, God for all that he's done. Even our faith, even our desire to worship is a gift from him. So how can we repay him with something that already has been belonged to him, something that he's given to us as a gift. We don't repay him. The way that we respond to his grace and his deliverance is by worship, and that's what he says. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? He says, I will lift, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, when I look at all he's done for me, all I can do is praise him, worship him, bow before him and adore him. And that's what the Lord expects from us in response to what he's done for us. What is the cup of salvation? Well, scripture basically speaks of two different cups. In the Old Testament, it talks about the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath, and it'll say that his wrath is not poured out upon sinners until that cup is full. But when that cup is full to overflowing, then that cup of wrath is poured out upon sinners. And it speaks of judgment and condemnation. But the scriptures also talk about the cup of salvation. And the cup that is full of God's covenant blessings for his people. It's the cup that overflows in Psalm 23. And it's interesting that Christ refers to both of these cups on the night before he was betrayed, the night on which he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross. In the upper room with his disciples, he held up the cup of the Passover meal and he presented it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. The cup of salvation the cup of the covenant blessings which God has promised to his people, which he has chosen for himself, the cup of salvation. But then later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded in prayer to the Father, and he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's speaking about the cup of wrath. The cup of God's wrath, which our sins deserved. In his human and divine natures. He understood that to accomplish our salvation and to deliver us from sin and death as the penalty for sin, he would have to bear the wrath of God. He would have to drink to the last drop the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath, which was full of our sins. And in his human nature, he recoils from it, understandably, and says, Lord, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. 
and he submits himself to the will of the Father, and he goes to the cross, and there he drinks that cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. And as he hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he endured that wrath, and then he hung his head and he died as he said, it is finished. The cup is empty. We are driven as we see this grace of God which has provided our deliverance from the ultimate death of the flesh and the death of the soul. We are driven to worship. That is the appropriate response to what has been done for us. And so the psalmist says twice, he says it in verse 14, he says it also in verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. He longs to be with God's people and to renew his vows to the Lord in worship. He longs to be in the presence of God's people. You get the sense that whatever it was, whatever trial he's just going through, whatever near-death experience he has endured, somehow it's prevented him from being with God's people. And he longs to worship God in the presence of God's people. Corporate worship is a necessary response to the grace of the Lord in delivering us from sin and death. This is now the fifth Sunday that we've not been able to come together in the presence of God to worship in body and soul before him, to praise him, and we grieve. It's been a serious loss in the life of this church and in every true church. And we need to be praying that God will restore this covenant blessing to his church. We need corporate worship. We need to be with each other to renew our vows to the Lord in the presence of the Lord and to declare his praises because that's what our soul needs to do in responding to his grace. For a time, we do worship the way we've been doing it these last few weeks. And the Lord understands, the Lord is sovereign, the Lord has arranged for this, he has his purpose in it. But there should be a growing, deep hunger to be back with God's people, worshiping together and praising him for his deliverance. And so worship is the first response. The second response we see in this psalm is service. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and has delivered us from death, we will serve him. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but we will serve him forever. Verse 9 says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's not making a commitment to do so there. He's rejoicing in the privilege of doing so. He has been spared from physical death so that he can walk with the Lord in the presence of the Lord in the land of those who are physically living in this fallen world. He gets to continue to serve the Lord in this world. Life after deliverance from death is driven not just by worship but by thankfulness and an awareness that we get to live our lives in the presence of the Lord and to serve him. We're in the presence of the Lord. There's a Latin phrase, coram Deo, which means before the face of God. And that means 
before the smiling face of God. God who has shown favor to us, the God who has shown grace to us, the God who has sent his son to die for us that we might be reconciled to him so that we might be adopted into his family as his children. We live before this God completely exposed to him. All of our thoughts, words, and deeds completely exposed to him and yet fully accepted by him because of the blood of Christ. To live in the continuous presence of God. In verse 16, he talks about this commitment to service. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Notice he says, I'm free to serve. The world doesn't understand that. How can you be freed in order to serve? Seems contradictory. But we who have known the Lord Jesus Christ, who have served under his lordship, know that that is what true freedom is. That's what we were created for. That's what the abundant life that he promised looks like, is that we get to serve him. It's not about my selfish will any longer. It's not about my selfish desires. It's not about my selfish agenda in life. It's not about my kingdom. It's about serving him, and that's where true satisfaction and true life is found. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died in our place, was raised from the dead, so that we would no longer live for ourselves. And we know what a dark, empty, destructive path that is, but that we would live for him for eternity. We are free from sin and death, free to serve God. And so our response to our deliverance from death is to live to worship, to live to serve Christ, and also to die well. That's the last point in this psalm. Because Jesus is risen, we as his servants die well. Look at verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What a comforting verse this is. I've used it often in funerals for believers. I never want to do funerals for unbelievers. But for believers, it's always a great comfort to read verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's the comfort of knowing that God is fully aware of the suffering and death of his saints, of his people, of his children. And that he's very near to those who are very near to death. We sometimes wonder, how could I ever face death? I faced it for just a split second, and it was unnerving, so deeply unnerving to me. But most of the time, I don't think about it. And when I do, I think, will I have the courage? Will I have the strength? Will my faith survive facing death itself? But the promise of this verse is that the Lord will be there in the moment of death that that moment is precious to him, valuable to him, a treasure to him. He'll be very close to you. He'll give you a special grace and a special strength to endure through death. Death is still our vicious enemy, even though it has been rendered powerless in Christ. It's because the risen Lord is the one who has promised, in the words of Psalm 23, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, 
death for the believer, as difficult and, and, and fearful as it may be in the moment, it is only falling asleep in the Lord. And we awake in that moment to be with him forever. James Montgomery Boyce, in his sermon on this passage, said this, God is particularly close to his people when they stand at death's door. God watches over his people when they are sick or dying, coming close to them and making his presence known so that they have comfort in death's hour. And you, as a believer, as a disciple of Christ, as one who is a child of God and loved dearly by him, you will have no stronger testimony to this world than in that moment when you die in hope when you die in the certainty that you're in the Lord's presence, you're in the Lord's hand, and you will be delivered through death into eternal life in his presence and his blessings. This world has no hope. Those outside of Christ have no hope. They may think they have hope, but they have no hope in the face of death. We have a certain hope in Christ, and that's a powerful testimony. And along with that, for that reason, we do not cling to life in this world like those who out without hope do. Let me read to you just a few verses from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, how he talked about his own death, the prospect of faith. He was looking death in the face when he wrote these words. And listen to what he says, beginning in verse 21 of, Rome, of Philippians chapter 1. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live... In the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet I shall not, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And there's Paul's struggle. He knew that death would usher him into the very presence of Christ. And that's what he longed for, is to see Christ face to face more than anything else. And yet, he also highly valued the opportunity to worship and serve Christ in this fallen world for the sake of others. Because that's the heart that Christ gives to those whom he delivers from death, is a heart to serve others, to build them up in faith, to share the word of God, to share the gospel. And so Paul was torn. His greatest hope was to be with Christ, but also he wanted to serve Christ and reach those who needed to hear about Christ. We do not fight for our life in this fallen world for our own selfish and worldly benefits and blessings. We do it for the sake of others and for the glory of Christ. And when that time comes and the Lord makes it clear that it's time to go to be with him, then we really rejoice because that is far better than life in this world. I'm reminded of the, fam of the famous last words of Adoniram Judson, who was an American missionary to the nation of Burma. This is what he said on his deathbed. I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Let me close by reading some words that I have read many times over the last few weeks as I've looked at social media and I've gotten emails from people. Many, many brothers and sisters in Christ have been quoting this to me and I can't hear it enough in light of the fearful and uncertain situation in which we're living right now. Let me close with these words. I can't think of a better way to close a message on Easter Sunday than this 
Question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one. What is your comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what the psalmist is trying to say to us in Psalm 116. Let me pray. Father, we worship you together in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. We are your children. We have been purchased with the blood of your only begotten Son. We've been adopted by your grace into your family. We are heirs of your eternal kingdom. All of this has been given to us as a gift of your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for preserving our lives in this world day in and day out, even when we don't recognize it. But Lord, most of all, thank you that we do not need to fear physical death, for it is only falling asleep in Jesus. And we look forward to that day when we will awake in your presence. And even more to that great day at the end of history when Jesus Christ, Christ will return again and he will give us a new body and a purified soul and we will worship you and serve you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope on this Lord's Day, this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.